podcast is brought to you by Matthew Fox, Skylar Wilson, and Jennifer Barrett Listig, the authors of a new, wonderful monkfish publication entitled Order of the Sacred Earth. Please listen to Greg's interview with Matthew Fox on podcast number 682, where they discuss the need for people to awaken to the environment and climate change issues that are affecting our planet. Where most westernized people have been so heavily dominated and alienated by religion, patriarchal government, and a materialistic, consumer-driven, extractive capitalism that we have lost our sense of sacred living landscapes that we inhabit and that inhabit us. I hope you enjoy podcast number 682 with Matthew Fox. And please, visit the book website at www.orderofthesacredearth.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Boyson, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Kelly, as I do every time I come on one of these shows, I have to thank the thousands, actually hundreds of thousands of listeners at this point, uh, over 15 years of doing podcasts now uh, and have quite a following. And I thank you guys for your comments, uh, listening to these podcasts, and learning from the words of wisdom from our authors. And today joining me from San Francisco is Kelly Palmer. Kelly, good day to you. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me today. Well, I appreciate you coming on Inside Personal Growth and giving us some uh, inspiration and I should say, let our listeners listen to your expertise about the expertise economy which is how the smartest companies use learning to engage, compete, and succeed. And I think for most of my listeners, Kelly, they recognize, uh, because we've got a good segment of middle management type people and people inside companies uh, that have to continually to motivate, inspire, and educate their workforce. So I'm going to let our listeners know something about you, Kelly. Kelly has been the chief learning and talent officer of several tech companies in Silicon Valley. She is currently on the executive team of Degree, where the mission is to help people and organizations build the skills they need to invent the future. A well-known thought leader on the future of learning and career development, Kelly was formerly the chief learning officer at LinkedIn, where she helped employees transform the trajectories of their careers through innovative learning strategies, led employee engagement, and with her team designed and developed LinkedIn's internal learning experience platform. And then prior to LinkedIn, Kelly was vice president of learning at Yahoo and held executive positions in learning, uh, M&A and product development at Sun Microsystems. She speaks regularly at business conferences around the world, has been featured on Big Think, Forbes, and the Chief Learning Officer Magazine, and writes a regular column in CLO at the employee experience. Kelly has a Bachelor of Arts in English and Communications and a Master in Adult Learning and Education Technology, and she lives in San Francisco. Well, Kelly, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. And, you know, just recently, um, I did a a podcast uh, with a professor from Stanford University, and Bill Burnett is his name. You might know him. Uh, I do know that. Yeah. And he does this design thinking uh, kind of lab at Stanford, which has now turned into designing your life and a course on creative live and all that. 
But, you know, it, it's interesting. You and David state in the book that if companies are to keep the competitive edge, they need to take the initial steps to create a culture of learning. Um, and I have two part question here. Uh, what are some of the companies that have taken those steps to create this learning environment? One, and two, don't you think they need to start actually earlier than when the employees actually get employed by the company? In other words, falling on the concept of, hey, you really should know what you want to do first before you actually even enter the, enter the company. Those are interesting questions. So, uh, so let's take the, the first one first about, um, about creating a learning culture. And I think people might have, um, that, that might be a vague statement for some, you know, what does it mean to have a learning culture at your company? And I've been really fortunate to be at some companies where the learning culture is so strong. Um, when I was at LinkedIn and creating the learning organization there, I mean, we had an amazing learning culture and it started from the top, you know, from our CEO on down, but it was also something that what the employees were very passionate about. Learning was part of the everyday vernacular. It was how people thought about their work. And then as I moved to degreed, which, you know, we're in the business of learning. We're a learning education technology platform. Again, you know, we, we encourage people to learn all the time, every day, continuously build their skills and to think about their careers and what kind of skills they want to build for the future. And so one of the things that, you know, we do or, and I do as part of my role on the executive team of, of Degreed is to ask people, you know, what kind of learning culture do you have at your company? Do you have a type of company where it's very uh, control-oriented, meaning top-down, we're going to tell you what, what learning you need to do and, um, and anything else isn't really, isn't really counted? Or do you have a, a culture where, um, where you're encouraged to learn all the time and that's through, you know, watching YouTube videos or listening to podcasts or learning in groups on the job? I think... Um, Microsoft and their CEO, Satya Nadella, we write about in the book, he has this, um, he's been working with Carol Dweck um, and on the growth mindset, and he's turned his company into a culture um, that believes that now it's more important to be learn-it-alls than know-it-alls. And I love that phrase. I just think it's fantastic to realize that learning takes some vulnerability and that to admit that you don't know everything when you're, especially if you're a manager or you're an executive in a company, it takes some vulnerability. And to, so to, to be, to, for leaders in a company to say, that's okay, you should be learning all the time. And uh, not everybody knows everything. I, I think that's kind of how I encapsulate um, learning culture and a couple of companies, like a couple of other companies that do great at that Airbnb, Bank of America, MasterCard, um, um, a few, few other examples of companies that are really <clears throat> Unilever. They're really, you know, uh, taking uh, learning culture front and center, uh, you know, as, as their, what's important to their company. On the second part of that question, and, and I want to pose that again, because I think it's great. You cited some companies that have embraced great learning cultures. And I think about all the young people that are coming out of college today. And one of the statements you made that a, four, a four-year degree is, the days are gone. Um, and, you know, we are kind of in this arena where I, I'm going to refer to it as disrupting learning environments where you see employees, you know, you've got to keep pace. It doesn't matter whether you're young or old. 
What do you think would be the pre-prep to get people not only passionate when they're hired, because I look at HR saying, hey, well, we're going to hire these people. And then you have to hire people that you want to make sure are really into continual learning and want to right. know more about their job and want to know all of this stuff versus just being, you know, bumps on a log, right? So right. my question for you that is this, you know, how, what are you seeing that's disruptive for both younger and older employees? And what are some of the things that companies can do to create this new environment of learning? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, this, this comment that, you know, no longer can we rely on a four-year degree to get us through the entirety of our careers. And I don't care whether, you know, my son just graduated from college about a year ago. He's in, you know, PR and he's learning, you know, his clients are doing cybersecurity and, um, and highly technical things that are, that are, you know, new, uh, new things in industry. And he, he needs to be learning about those all the time, even though that he studied public relations in college. Um, I think that, that um, one of the things that's really interesting is, is that if you ask anyone, especially people who are um, in college, you know, what they want to do for the rest of their lives, that's a daunting question, right? Because, you know, and I think we used to try to get people to, to, to commit to a career. But what the, the disruption that I think is happening in the industry is people are realizing that <clears throat> skills are transferable and that people will have many careers in their lifetime. I, I ask people a lot of times, tell me about your career path. And people will say, oh, it was, it was not standard. It was, you know, I couldn't have predicted the different roles I, I had. I read your background and I know you have the same you know, the same experience. You did a lot of different things in, the, in, your, in your career so far. So I think that really embrace that and saying, you know, we don't need people to necessarily uh, pick a career and stick with it all the time and, and have them be on a career ladder. What we need are people who, who understand that their career is going, going to take probably many turns um, throughout the, their, their lifetimes and that the, probably the most important thing that people need to realize is that they need to have learning agility and to be able to adapt and adjust to what's happening either in their company or their industry because that will enable them to have new opportunities and to stay open to new opportunities when they, when they arise. And so if you're, if you're a person that's interviewing at a company, I would say one of the most important things that a hiring manager can be asking employees is, you know, what did you learn last week, last month, last year, and get a sense of whether they're continuous learners, whether they're curious, whether they want to be learning new things all the time or, or, or not. And I think that those are going to be the most valuable employees for the future. Well, and I think those are great questions to ask, Kelly. And along with that, you know, you and David Blake, who you wrote this book with, um, you state that if companies fail to adapt, they're at risk, right? And that starts at HR, and it goes all the way through the company, uh, all the way through the chief learning officer, or even if you don't have that in your company, create an environment which um, advocates it. Uh, you know, you help people go to uh, workshops and classes. You put them on yourself inside the company. So lots of small companies out there that, that need help with this. 
and you give seven guiding principles that should be followed to create what I'm going to say is a competitive edge. Can you outline for the listeners, whoever's out there listening, whether you're a small or large company, I want you to hear what Kelly has to say, because it doesn't matter. You can create this environment and you do not need lots of money to do it. Right. And I'd say, um, you know, part of it is a mindset shift in, in kind of letting go, go of some of the antiquated ideas we have about learning. You know, in the past it was, um, even when I was at Sun Microsystems back in, you know, the mid to 2000s, it was we used to think we had to create all of our own content on our own. And the fact is, is that there's so much content available out there, so much learning content. You know, how can we help people um, get the content that they need that's most relevant? So one of the strategies is around um, we talk about this in the book, uh, combating content overload. You know, how can we help people by curating content that's uh, that's out there? And that means whether you have a, lear- a large learning organization or even a learning culture, you can have not only uh, you can have subject matter experts at your company be curating content for areas where their subject matters. And and that that segues into another area of the book, which is about peer-to-peer learning, where we're certainly not taking advantage enough of learning from the other smart people that we work with in a more uh, thoughtful way. So I think um, setting up opportunities to learn from other smart people. Let me give you an example. So we have um, a guy at Degreed who's, who's uh, amazing, an amazing data scientist, and that's one of the hot new areas now people want to understand data science and data analytics and yet he's he's one guy everyone wants to learn from him but what he's done is curated a pathway of content saying you know if you want to learn about this skill here's an article to read here's a video to watch here's a podcast to listen to here's a class to take and a variety of resources most of them free or low cost and curating them into a a pathway where people that want to learn about data science can say, oh, here's somebody who's been really successful in that area, curated content for me so that I can follow that path. The other part of that is is that, you know, that may not be as scalable in all cases, although I would say MasterCard did a really great job of putting out a contest at their company by saying, you know, we would love everybody to curate a content pathway for their area of expertise and kind of got everybody involved in the learning process. Then all of a sudden you have a whole company that's, that's part of your learning organization. But um, in addition to that, you can also, we, we at Degreed use machine learning to also help um, people uh, to help people get the content that they need. Meaning it's kind of like if, if you were to think about Netflix for movies or Spotify for music, it, it gets to know what you're interested in learning about, what skills you want to build. And then it serves up content uh, based on what it knows you want to learn or what you like. And then you can, the more you use it, the more it gets to know what you want and it serves up curated content based on that. So those are a few of the tips. Um, you know, there are seven of them. I could probably spend um, our whole interview going going through each one of, of the tips, but those are a couple of the um, of the things that companies can do and people can do to create, you know, a, a, a learning culture and also a competitive advantage at your company around learning. Because the the companies that keep you know their employees learning all the time are the ones that are going to be ready for the future. 
Well, there is an issue which we are seeing more and more, and you keep hearing about this on uh, most of the analysts in the industry are talking about it, and this, this whole skills gap. And you talk about it in, in the book to kind of close the skills, reset, and upskill the workforce. And, you know, I remember uh, I have a friend now where Linda from lynda.com, which LinkedIn bought, right, um, yes. is is just just put a platform out, actually, Linda and uh, Simon Mainwiring. And interestingly enough, you know, I looked at, go back to the days of, of lynda.com, and I said, okay, that was all about skills. And then I see Creative Live pop up, which is another one, which is partially skills and interpersonal skills um, that they're working on both on that platform. What do you, what do you recommend to mid-sized, large companies, smaller companies to help reset the skills and upskill uh, the workforce, whether they're young or old? Right. And, and, you know, I think you named a few of the content providers out there. As I mentioned, there are hundreds and hundreds of content providers out there. It's, it's how do you wade through, you know, all of them decide what, you know, what, what content will help you um, um, the best. But I'd, I'd say that um, for, in terms of upskilling and reskilling the workforce, if we, if we raise that conversation up a level, one of the things that's most interesting to me right now is how, how um, more than ever CEOs are worried that their employees don't have the skills that they need to succeed in the future. And I think that you know, if we look at the, the data, what we hear now is, is that half of the S&P 500 companies uh, won't exist in uh, in the next 10 to 15 years, and what does it mean? Either they'll be dis, either they'll disappear because you know other industries have taken over, or they'll get acquired, or um, or several reasons that that will happen. So the question is, how can companies stay ahead of that curve and help their employees get the skills of the future? And what makes it so difficult is that it's hard to predict what skills we will need. For the future, so I think that there's a two-pronged approach to this. And um, if we think about Unilever, for example, has over 160,000 employees across the globe, and they're taking a proactive approach to say, "Look, we want to start um, one, creating a, a learning culture, so we're getting the advantage of all of our employees learning all the time. But we're also going to provide some guidance for our employees. Like we think this is the direction that we're going with our company, and that these are the top skills we're going to need for the whole company and for different functional areas, whether that be marketing or engineering or sales or whatever. So giving a little bit of guidance on what skills they think will be uh, required for the future and then being proactive about helping their employees get those skills so that they don't run into the unfortunate circumstance that a lot of companies find themselves is that having to lay off a certain number of people because they don't have the right skill set and then rehire people who do have the right skill set. If you're more proactive in thinking about it, you can actually start to cross uh, train, upskill, reskill people. And I don't think it's necessarily a matter of resetting. I mean, we've all got uh, skills that are valuable that, that can uh, we can take into the future, but it's about kind of keeping up on the latest trends of what's happening in certain areas of your field. Even learning is a great example. Like when I started the learning organization at LinkedIn, I didn't hire 
traditional instructional designers, I started hiring content curators. And I started looking at, instead of people who just knew about learning management systems, I, I hired people who could look at uh, an entire technology ecosystem. So those are because of some of the trends I saw that were happening, I started hiring for different people outside. And so I think that that's part of leaders and managers job is to is to help guide but also to empower employees to be learning all the time because a lot of times since they're on the front line they're going to understand what the new trends are before others do and we can take advantage of that yeah and i think the resources if you said are just uh, prolific out there and and i recall a time you know i know linkedin owns this company or i think they still do which was slideshare right um, yeah. You know, when you look at collaboration, and let's talk about that for a minute, because the reality is uh, one of the key things in continual learning is the ability to collaborate. And you've got actually four different generations working in the workforce today. Uh, people are living longer, and you have a lot of elders and wisdom out there. How do you propose that we tap in uh, to that transfer that to create succession of this knowledge, which is really a big problem that companies are having today. And it is really all about the learning. Do you have any tips for the listeners out there and how to do that effectively? Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, you've hit on a really, uh, a really important point of the generations in the workforce and, and where we need to start thinking a bit differently about this, because I think, um, you know, I interviewed um, Carrie Williard, who was the co-author of the 2020 Workplace in, in, for the book, to kind of look at some of the predictions that they had and, you know, which how they panned out. And one of the things that was interesting is that we did think um, about 10 years ago that a lot of baby boomers were going to be retiring en masse and that there would be a huge, um, a huge gap there. But what we're seeing instead is, is that people are... Uh, working longer because not only in some cases they need to, but in other cases because they want to. And the, but the workforce has not adapted to all these um, generations in the workforce. They have, have, there's, there's been kind of an obsession with the younger generation and the millennials and the new college grads coming out of school with no emphasis whatsoever on the workforce of of um, of the baby boomers, you know, the 50 to 70 year olds, and if people are going to be working longer in their lives, how can we how can we tap into that and take advantage of it? So I'd say the first step would be for people to look at their workforce mo more holistically and to start including um, uh, group and uh, collaborative uh, learning and working environments that include all of those generations working together. And I give a few examples in the book of, of, of team, um, team collaboration, which I think is incredibly powerful when you actually get teams together and you start solving a real work problem at work. Imagine if you have, you know, several generations to get working on that, how much more value could be added if you have the experience of people who have been in the workforce for a while and uh, the younger generation, which is bringing new, fresh ideas to the workplace. I think that we, we have just not tapped into that enough, and there's ways that learning can help, and learning models through group and peer collaboration can really help drive that. Yeah, and I do believe it is an area that uh, we've really 
lacked in um, developing. Um, I don't know if there's any good books out there you can recommend besides your own for people to read or references for that, but I do know you have a uh, at your website. People can go to www.expertiseeconomy.com and there there's a blog. Um, there's some more media things for people to to actually uh, get in hold of as well. Um, right. But if you one, do, one, do, go ahead. Yeah, one one recommendation I strongly um, would uh, would give would be um, Linda Grattan and Andrew Scott, both both from the London uh, School of Business, wrote a book called The Hundred Year Life, and this and they do talk a lot about skills for the future and this whole idea that we need to rethink. Um, the the cycles of life and it's not just uh, three anymore you know the education marry and work and then retire we have to rethink that so people who and and they do talk a lot about skills we interviewed Andrew for the book and uh, so I would highly recommend that as as one and I guess the second book that I would recommend for people to start thinking about a new shift in their mindset would be Todd Rose's book called The End of Average um, how to succeed in a world value sameness. I think I think uh, changing your mindset around around how we think about work and learning. Those are two great um, great books that people can look at. Great references. Thank you, Kelly, for that. I really sure. appreciate it, and I think my listeners will as well because I think many of these listeners are very hungry for the knowledge. And your book offers a very in depth look at what companies really need to do. Um, to shore up for this because if they don't they're going to be in trouble and you know you talk about something that we haven't really talked about which is called the skills quotient uh, to measure continuous learning and skills development um, what is that skills quotient and and how does it work okay that's a great question so the skills quotient is something that David and I um, developed as we were as we were writing the book and we wanted to share it with people because one of the things that we believe is it sounds so simple yet I don't think that a lot of people ask this question it's a simple idea that you ask what skills do you have and then what skills do you need for the future and you can do this at the individual level so personally I could ask myself okay do I and and when I say it's simple, how many people have asked themselves, you know, what skills do I actually have? People default to, oh, this is the degree I got in college, but don't really think about skills, the, the exact skills that they have. And that's why it's going to be so important in the future because I, and why we wrote the book, The Expertise Economy, is we really believe it's going to be all about skills for the future. People are going to be more focused on what skills they have because um, because that's going to be the currency by which people get work for the future. So you can ask yourself at the individual level, what skills do I have and what skills do I need? And that's kind of eye-opening in and of itself. And, and the difference is the skills quotient. That kind of identifies your gap. And we talk more about that in the book about how that actually works. But it can also work at the team level. So if you ask a manager, do you know the skills that people have on your team and then what, your, what skills they might need for the future for the company to succeed? You can look at it at the organizational level, the company level, and then even all the way up to the industry level. And what this is doing is it's just elevating the conversation at, um, around the skills gap and why it's so important, but providing an easy way for people to think about it. 
because what we've done in the past is just talk about learning programs. Oh, we ran a leadership development program or we ran a, you know, a negotiating skills class. You can't talk about that in an aggregate. It's way too myopic. But if you up-level the conversation and if, and if CEOs and business leaders are worried that, that, that employees don't have the skills that they need to um, help their company be successful for the future, and we know that employees are also worried that they don't have the skills that they need as things are moving so fast with digitization, automation, and, and just how the rate of change that's happening today. Skills quotient is a great way for people to simply reflect on what skills they have, what skills they need, and, 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 how, and how companies can look at that as well. So you can have that conversation with business leaders and CEOs and say, look, I'll give you an example. Again, I'll use data data science or uh, data analytics as a, as a huge area. I don't care what um, function you work in, whether you're in learning or whether you're in marketing or whether you're in engineering, everyone needs to understand how to analyze data and get insights out of that. Yet we don't have really enough um, data scientists or data analysts to uh, fill those roles. And so if a company has identified that as being you know, a, a, a need for the future, a skill for the future, you can use skills quotient to kind of identify who in your company has those skills and how many, you know, how many people need those skills and how do we close that skills gap? So that's the idea behind the skills quotient. Well, I think that for every listener out there, they recognize there's a gap in learning. And as the speed of our technology has increased, with the plethora of resources that are out there. There's no excuse for companies, uh, both financially and or to get in, just to get engaged in this continual learning environment. I think that's, it doesn't matter if you're a two person company or you're a 100,000 person company, you've got to develop uh, the, uh, the workforce and create a culture that embraces allowing them to learn. Um, it's not just about reimbursement for that four-year degree anymore. As a matter of fact, it, in your case, it's probably less that and more about learning skills that can be applied immediately now to help solve problems. And I think that's what you and uh, David basically are talking about is how to do that. And I would recommend to all of my listeners, if you want to take a dive into uh, learning more about how to do this, get Kelly's book and go to the website called the expertiseeconomy.com uh, is where you can learn more about that. You can also pre-order the book there. You can just go to Amazon and order. We're going to have a link at Amazon. Kelly, it's been a pleasure having you on Insight Personal Growth. Any parting words for the listeners about learning or how to embrace this? Um, well, first of all, I just want to thank you for having me as a guest today. And I guess the parting words I would um, leave people with is that um, that learning is actually uh, something that I think people really love to do. People, people learn when they care about something. And so I, I think um, find out what you're passionate about, what you care about, and then uh, and then uh, go out and, and, and learn with all the uh, with the abundance of learning that's out there and available, and um, and continuous learning is actually going to, I think, really help people be um, uh, happy and successful for the future. Well, thank you for writing this book to to you and David, uh, and for informing our listeners just a little bit more 
about some of the things they can do to actually shift their cultures, uh, how the people can embrace learning themselves. And again, for my listeners, uh, we have been on uh, with Kelly Palmer, P-A-L-M-E-R, and she is the co-author of a book with David Blake called The Expertise Economy. You can check them out at www.expertiseeconomy.com. Thanks so much, Kelly. Thanks, Greg.